Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. I invite you to join me on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as a participant in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. One of our goals on this podcast is to ignite um, an interest and a passion for the beauty of classical education. On today's show, we have a guest who is also interested in focusing on the importance of beauty for the formation of our minds and souls. So Jonathan Pajot, I'm very delighted to welcome you to the show, and I'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work and how it matters to the work we're doing in classical education. All right. Well, thanks for having me. I am mostly an artist, a visual artist. Uh, that is, I am a liturgical artist who carves icons for churches. And uh, it's something, you know, I studied fine art when I was in college, but I became quite disillusioned with the world of contemporary art. It was seemed very cynical and arbitrary. And I wanted to make something real. I wanted to make something that was connected to community, but also spoke of of something real and that was a comment on a comment on a comment on something which is what most contemporary art is and so in that in my search i discovered the traditional christian language of uh visual art you know the medieval way of representing the way the iconology of the church that led me in part that's part of what led me to becoming orthodox and ultimately becoming uh, an iconographer but also in some ways an expert on the symbolism in icons and also a becoming an expert on the symbolism in Christianity itself. Can, you could call it like this grand poetic language that exists within the church, these references, these analogies that exist as much in the visual images as they do in the architecture, but also in the hymnography and the storytelling. So there's this kind of this beautiful web of references that exist within the Christian tradition. And I really fell in love with that, especially the way in which I noticed how Christians were capable of also integrating other stories within their own. And so and I fell in love with Dante, fell in love with, you know, a, a certain Christian legend that also included this vision of Troy and this vision of, of how to integrate also pagan storytelling and pagan culture into Christianity. Of course, keeping it at its proper place, not 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 letting it get too close to the altar, you could say, but all but but nonetheless celebrating the beautiful aspects of every culture. And so in that guise, I would say uh, I became very much a lover of, of beauty and how beauty shapes our reality and how it shapes the way we exist in the world. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed your podcast, The Symbolic World. I want our listeners to hear a little bit about, about what you do on that particular podcast. It's it's pretty dynamic. <laughs> um, you've had some really amazing guests, and your conversations are very provocative often. Um <laughs> I hope our listeners will um, find you. I don't know how many of our listeners really are aware of your your podcast, The Symbolic World. Can you tell us a little bit about that particular project that you do? Yeah. Well, this, what The Symbolic World is doing is it seems like we're in an interesting point in, in history or in 
just the, where the fields are, where our understanding is. So we have this moment in all the fields, whether it's scientific, whether it's organizational theories, whether it's social theories, where we're facing the problem of complexity, the problem of how multiplicity joins together to become one. And you know that this problem is being addressed in physics as much as in cognitive science. And so it's an interesting moment because in some ways, the notion of pattern and the notion of uh, emergence, that's the word people use, is is extremely relevant to people. And in that context, it, it gives us an opportunity to help people understand the role of beauty in the way we even perceive the world, in the way in which we perceive unity amongst the kind of chaotic multiplicity that presents itself to us. And that's true in stories, as it is in images, as it is in the way we remember things in our own personal lives. And so the symbolic world is really a diving into those patterns you know, what are the patterns of stories? What are the patterns of images? What are the patterns we find in the Bible and in, 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 in different myths and how they're relevant to our experience today? How in some ways they are a, a map, you could call them, to the way we experience the very banal reality that we live in every day. So in that context on the symbolic world, I end up talking to very diverse people. You know, I talk to cognitive science, I talk to theologians, I talk to artists, I talk to people in the cultural world uh, all in this desire to help people notice these structures and these patterns which inform reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think your work is really important to what is going on also in the classical education world. It's the same thing. There's people seeking an, a deeper understanding of, of the truth of how we should be educating children today and aware of the importance. I mean, the biggest slogan in the classical education world is we educate children in truth, goodness, and beauty. But mm -hmm. half the half the people in the movement don't know how to answer what that means. What does truth, goodness, and beauty really actually mean? And I think that your podcast is really a great resource to help people understand what truth, goodness, and beauty means and why it matters so much. And I think you're right. We are in a movement where where people want to understand our place in the world mm. and why yeah, why brain. why it really matters um and so one of the i got really excited when i found out about your fairy tale project and that so mostly we're going to talk about that today because yeah. i think for the classical education world fairy tales are very very important and i'm excited that you are uh tackling this amazing new project about with kind of rewriting the fairy tales, but not really rewriting them um, and keeping them true to their uh, original meanings. And I think that I've, I read your Snow White one version and it's absolutely breathtaking. Um, the language that you use in the story is beautiful. I don't always um, endorse uh adaptations or new writings because often they're not they're just dumbing it down right <laughs> but you have done such a great job in this rewrite that it is not dumbed down at all if anything it's just it's it's popping out at, in at you with this just amazing transcendent um beauty uh and i'm excited the illustrations just breathtaking and I know there's a lot of symbolism in them uh and so I really want to hear and want our listeners to hear more about this project and why fairy tales are so important and one thing if you could address about why fairy tales are important we've had vegan Gorian on the show talking about this as well but some Christian parents are afraid of fairy tales how, how do you um 
how have you approached maybe some people that that feel like fairy tales are I mean I'm a Christian I don't know that I want my child to read about all this bad stuff happening you know monsters eating children <laughs> but yeah. how, how and why do fairy tales actually matter especially to Christian parents and educators <clears throat> so maybe we can start at, at the at the beginning with the reason why I wanted to do this was because I've been watching, like many people, I've been watching the level of storytelling in the world, in kind of the movies and the popular uh, fiction, been watching the level of storytelling uh, degrade in the past, you know, 20 years or maybe more, where it seems like there's a cynicism in the storytelling. There's also a a uh, a kind of ideological capture where people are using the the this the the very deep stories of our culture to to bring about certain very key points that are political or that are ideological and i saw a lot of people kind of complaining about that and i thought you know why should we we shouldn't complain i mean i do a little bit of it but we should mostly go in ourselves and dive into the stories and celebrate them and and retell them in ways that are <laughs> that really are celebratory and so that was the impetus for doing it is to say uh, you know, instead of complaining at the way that Disney is what they're doing with our fairy tales now, let's rather take them and and retell them with joy and and do the best we can with beautiful illustration, beautiful language, and that was really the impetus for doing it. But I also thought that there was something about postmodern storytelling which was valuable because there is a kind of one step stepping out of the fairy telling and looking at it like there is a, a way in which there's certain tropes that can be perceived that way so what i wanted to do was to to provide fairy tales that would that could be read to children completely read to children you know you could mm -hmm. read it to an eight-year-old and the eight-year-old will love it and participate in it but i also wanted to put in there those things that would pop out for adults not 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 like the kind of dirty joke that you find in a Shrek movie or that kind of uh, illusions for adults that are a little shady, but rather provide insight, you know, because we love those fairy tales when we were young too. And sometimes it's mysterious why we love them. And what I wanted to do is to put little keys in there, little moments, bright moments, so that even grown-ups could say, oh, that's why, like, you know, and not without explaining it, without, you know, not being, uh, but rather pointing to some analogies or some things that people had noticed and, and making them shine more. And so that's what, that was really the impetus in, in doing this is to, to, to create this kind of moment between a parent and a child where both are enjoying it and having insight and in reading the story. Yeah, I think you did that really well. Last night, I actually, to prepare, I was like, I'm going to reread the Grimm's version of, of this because I, I endorse, you know, read the real one, read the Grimm's version and compare it to yours. And you did exactly what you just said, the shining moments. They were like um, the part where the, the prince kisses uh, Snow White. I was like, oh, oh, there was like an that's awakening. What, that's what that's about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shining moment there. And I think especially as an Orthodox uh, Christian, it sort of really struck me, perhaps a little differently, because of of how how we we uh, we kiss one another and we yeah. we you know venerate and yeah, and we venerate exactly. That was definitely you definitely yeah. got the idea of the veneration and all of that was something I wanted to bring into the story. Uh, yeah. and, but to answer your other question about Christians, I think I think you know this is going to sound a little harsh at the outset, which is that I think that when Christians struggle with fairy tales. It's because they forget what's in the Bible. I don't know what to tell you. You've forgotten what's in the Bible. The Bible is not a rosy, happy-go-lucky thing. The, the Bible is a very rough reading. 
And so the idea that in fairy tales, there are some difficult things that are addressed, usually through images, they are addressed through uh, analogies and allegories, um, you know, I think that this is something that's actually important, you know, and there has been in some ways a kind of Puritan asepticizing of fairy tales that we have seen happen in the 19th and 20th century. And what I wanted to do, and then in reaction to that, then you get the really cynical, dark retellings that are that are that are really right. horrible. Exactly. And so what I wanted to do was to actually strike a balance where we do address some of the difficult elements, but we try to do it with a light touch that 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 will, let's say, help the child move into some spaces that are difficult, but that won't be there just to shock or to traumatize or to, to, you know, to, to affect. And so I was trying to strike that balance. Uh, so, and so the, the stories are really talking about similar things that you find in scripture and in, and in other kind of important stories, but it is a different language. It, it's not, it is a more imaginative language that you will find in the Bible, but the things that it's dealing with are very, are very similar. Yeah, yeah, it it was yeah. It's very, very, very good, and I really hope our listeners will will uh, purchase your set of books. Well, I guess I want to also find out what other books you're redoing. I know you're doing Snow White. Yeah, so and a few so others. Let me. I want to give you a little example, just because I wanted yes. just to really hit home for people. To good, understand. good. Yes. So yeah, do- if you read in Scripture, the story of Jairus's daughter, and what's going on in that story. Reading the story of Sleeping Beauty and Snow White can help you understand Jairus's daughter because the themes that they're dealing with are very similar. And, and, and the story of Jairus's daughter can kind of just flow by you and you might not notice what, what are, the, what are the, the deep, deep patterns of transformation that are being addressed in that story. But med- meditating on the fairy tales can give you hints at what is going on in that story. So that's just a little example, you know, where you have a 12-year-old girl uh, related to the issue of bleeding with the woman that is healed by Christ just before, then she dies, and then Christ resurrects her. Well, that is very similar to what's happening in Sleeping Beauty and in Snow White, you know. Uh, and so the, the fairy tales do deal with with subjects that are, you know, and one of the things that the modern people have done is want to make the fairy tales only about sexuality, right? You see that in a lot of the a lot of the very cynical re- retellings and interpretations. The thing is that the the fairy tales do address sexuality, but not just that. Not it's not only about that. It's also using images of transformation of the young girl for an image of transformation in general, right? How we all go through transformation, how we all go through cycles of difficulty and 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 waking up and resurrection. All of these things are part of the fairy tales. Uh, and so th- there has to be ways to tell them so that we do kind of hint at these these life subjects without being without being uh, let's say rude or, or or gross about it, but but just kind of hinting at them and helping people see that this is about transformation and changes in our lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point about the the Bible too. That fairy tales do help, I think, children to uh, be able to read the scripture better. Even yeah. parents, even us, you know, all of us, they help us to enter into the truth that's in scripture in a different way. I, I actually teach a class on fairy tales about once every quarter mm-hmm. on how to approach fairy tales um, because I think a lot of people. In, in the Christian realm, especially, are kind of af- afraid to approach a fairy tale with their young children. Mm. But what's interesting is that actually the young children 
receive them really, really well because they don't have a lot of baggage in the way yeah. that we have. <laughs> so they just hear, they, they just hear they just hear the story. They don't they have just, exactly. They don't have that baggage to kind of interrupt the thought process of, well, wait a minute. What's they're not over analyzing. They're just letting yeah. the story be the story. And, and there's they, some things, there's some images that you wonder why they connect so strongly to stories. Uh uh, to the kids and they do and you can't help it it's like they're the fairy tales have really captured very very profound structures of the human but, psyche and and of human perception that kids just yeah they listen to something and sometimes some of the stories i feel like one of the stories we're telling in the fairy tales so maybe i will tell you which ones we're telling i'm doing eight fairy tales four uh that have a female arc and four that have a male arc oh nice and so and they will also have an arc that will cross through the story. So the stories will be independent and can be read alone for a child. But there will also be themes and characters and, uh, let's say, illusions that will cross through. And there'll be like an arc that goes through the different the different uh, stories. Uh, and so we're doing uh, Snow White, Rapunzel, Sleeping Beauty, and Cinderella. <clears throat> and the story, and, and one of the things I wanted to do was, because, for example, like the story of Rapunzel, I remember reading that as a, as a, to a, to my kids as a child when they were young. And there are some serious like narrative problems in that story. There's some things that you don't like why the prince falls, he's blinded. And then why is he, then he wanders around and then he hears her singing. Why does he hear her singing? And it's like, there's all these weird things in the story. And one of the things I wanted to do was to really take a lot of time and meditate on the story, like comparing it to other fairy tales and comparing it to, and then make the story shine in a way that connects the elements together, not change the story, but take the story and then connect these elements in a way that, that makes you realize, oh, that's why she's singing. That's why he's blinded. That's why all these things like that you, that you could see in the story, but were almost muddy for you, you know? Right. Uh, the same thing in Snow White. Uh, there are certain elements, like, for example, like she eats an apple and she dies. And you think, well, I know that story, right? Isn't that that story in Genesis? Like, what, what, it's muddy for you. You look at it and, and it looks like you're looking through a dark mirror and you can see the connections, but not totally. And I wanted to just have little elements to make that pop out for you. Like, oh, okay, that's how it's connected to scripture. But that's how it's connected to the, to also even like the Trojan War and the judgment of Paris. It's like, these are all, these stories are all dealing with, with the same subjects. It's true. What are the male uh Okay, so stories? the male fairy tales, it's trickier because there are less male-led fairy tales, but uh, I'm doing it at, from the point of, like the trickster and the giant killing story. So it's going to be Jack and the Beanstalk to start off with, then the valiant little tailor, uh, then the third story, I'm not totally sure yet. There's a story called Little Thumb that is mm -hmm. quite known in in, mm -hmm. in in the French speaking world, but it's not as known in English. So I, I'm not sure if I'm going to use that one, but it's a, it's kind of a Hansel and Gretel story with a yes. little man who who gets caught in the giant's lair and escapes through trickery and stuff. Uh, and then the last story is a is a surprise. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell which one the last one is. Okay, this is exciting. So, how are you releasing the books? Do you have a, a plan? Yeah, so on we're that? doing we're doing one female led, one male led, uh, and alternating until we get to the end. So, Snow White first, then Jack, uh, then Rapunzel, and then we're going to keep going. And we have okay. we have world class illustrators. Heather Paulington, who did Snow White, is just astounding. She's going to be doing several of the books, and then we have other artists who, who that will announce very soon, as soon as all the details are are set up. But we have really great illustrators.
Oh, I, I couldn't even believe the illustrations that I saw for the Snow White story. They were, they're really beautiful. And I'm looking at them. There's got to be a ton of symbolism in there that I'm not even, not even aware of, but I love that the, 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 the illustrations draw you in and make you wonder more. Mm. So anybody who wants their children to be, uh, you know, have this beautiful education that's rooted in wonder, I think these books are going to really do that yeah, for the so. children and the parents. Really, they really are beautiful. Um, and um, the other question I have is like, how, how are you going about launching this project and what what kind of needs do you have i know you're doing like a kickstarter for it yeah what other needs do you have for the project so basically the the goal because the last year i did um I, I published a graphic novel uh called god's dog and and i really wanted to we wanted to publish it on our own because we wanted to keep total creative control over what we're doing uh and also you know it's the publishing industry is weird now you just you know you don't want to kind of fall under their thumb too much so we decided to do it on our own, but it's very difficult. It really almost killed me. Like publishing my own book was so hard. And so I decided that what I want to do with these fairy tale projects is to also use it as a vehicle to start a publishing company. So basically that's why we're kickstarting it and we're really pushing to raise as much money as possible because basically I'll be hiring people to run a publishing company. Uh, and then we'll have enough funds to, to start the project in advance to be able to start two or three at a time so that we have a nice timely uh, production of the books. Uh, so that's really the, the the goal of why we're doing a Kickstarter, why we're doing it that way. Hmm. How can our listeners uh, participate in the Kickstarter? Where can they go to find Yeah, so people can look, can search for Snow White and the Widow Queen on Kickstarter and you'll you'll find the project. It's going until July uh, July 6th, that's the, the cutoff date. And uh, yeah, like I said, we're really pushing to do as much as possible so that, because we also would like to do other projects. We already have great ideas to, to kind of create the high quality uh, books for adults and for children that provoke that sense of wonder and that also that sense of celebration, you know, like the, this idea that these ancient stories that we have, they're there, there are stories and we should, we should dive into them, you know, and we should retell them and mm -hmm. we should, we should, we should celebrate them. Mm -hmm. I will definitely put a link to that in the show notes for anybody who's interested in, I, I, I love your, um, behind you is your symbolic world, uh, new logo for your publishing yeah. company. Can you tell us about that? It's beautiful and it's so on your website. Actually, yeah. It was actually designed by, uh, by, uh, Heather Pollington and it's based on the medieval legend, which is called the Peridexian tree. And this, this, it, it, it was in some ways a way for me to kind of, uh, understand the modern world and also understand this idea of patterns and how they kind of form reality is that so the peridexian tree is a tree very far away in the east you know somewhere in india somewhere that is very particular because in the tree these doves will come and rest in the tree and then under the tree is a dragon and the dragon while the birds are in the tree the dragon in some ways frightens the other, uh, anybody that would attack it, any other predator. But if any of the bird leaves the shadow of the tree, then the dragon will eat the, the dove. And so uh, 
that image of the peridexin tree was to me a, a powerful image of this idea of the tree, which is the patterning of reality, right? A tree is, that's exactly what it is. Uh, and how, you know, it acts as a kind of protection against, you know, the chaos below. And that the chaos below is not necessarily evil in, in itself. It, 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 it's just there and it acts as a kind of buffer in, in between things. But if you leave the pattern, then it can swallow you up. And so, so it, it really is an image of the symbolic world and the way that I talk about uh, the center and the margin. And I try to help people understand monsters. So that's one of the things I try to do in my, in my uh, podcast is because people don't understand what, what these things are. What the, why are there gargoyles on churches? You know, why is it, are there all these strange monsters in marginalia of medieval manuscripts? Uh, so it's one of the things that I explain as well. Yeah. Can you tell us now? Why there are monsters on yeah. churches? So yeah, yeah. So it's 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 pretty simple, you know. And and I can tell it. I can explain it to you with the story of Snow White if you want. It's a it's probably a good way to understand it. And so everybody has something like their home or their identity or the thing that binds them together, themselves to their family, to their to their tribe, to their peoples. However level you want to see it. There's something that binds you together, and it's like an invisible center, right? You you can't totally point to what's the center of your family. It's an invisible binding that we have the same origin, that we have the same values, that we have the the, the same attention, um, and so that was understood in ancient times all the time as you know the the the. The Omphalos, for example, right? The center of the world, or the idea that Jerusalem is the center of the world, or that Delphi, or that all these different places mm -hmm. act as these kind of cosmic centers that give us your identity and, and give you your identity and is the, the center around which we kind of circumambulate and participate. And so the more you move away from that, the more you move away from that identity. First, you encounter multi multiplicity. First, you encounter the elements of the identity in their multiple forms, right? So mm -hmm. you encounter the different people in your family and the different aspects of, of the world. But the further you go, the more those become more and more disconnected and become more and more less and less connected to the identity. And then you encounter the strange. You encounter things that you don't recognize. You encounter the stranger. And then ultimately, the monster is the ultimate version of the stranger. Right, the stranger isn't a, isn't a. It, it's we hear alarm bells when we talk about that because it's like it's the the stranger isn't an ethnic or racial thing at all. It just means the things that you don't know what it is. And so every culture has strangers, just things that they don't that don't fit in their own culture that don't that don't fit. And that's an important part of of storytelling. And that's where you'll see monsters, because monsters are just a mixture of things that don't fit together. That's what a monster is. So. It's something that I don't know what it is. And so it presents itself as a hybrid, as a mixture between uh, a lizard and a bird and a lion, or it's too much. It's too big. It's too little. You know, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit with the standards of what I recognize as being, as, as constituting my world. And mm -hmm. so in fairy tales, the, the character will leave the castle right? We'll leave the, the, the important place. We'll leave the place usually after losing their father or losing their mother, losing the thing that binded, that bound them, the thing that gave them their name, their identity. And then they will be cast into the woods and in the woods, they will encounter chaos and darkness. And then they'll encounter monsters. Now the monsters have all kinds of forms. Sometimes they're not as obvious to us at the outset. They can be talking animals, you know, like uh, like uh, Sleeping Beauty, 
or Goldilocks or, or all of these types of characters. They can be the dwarves because the dwarves are too small. They're too little. They, they don't fit. They're like fragmentary aspects of humanity. In some ways, especially for Snow White, they're like the loss of her father and the, the, the moving towards finding her prince. And in the meantime, she's dealing with all these like weird old little men that don't, that can't be her husband, right? They can't be her mate. They can't be her father that are like idiosyncratic aspects of, of masculinity. Uh, actually, Disney does a great job at that in their movie because it's like grumpy and sneezy and all these like little annoying things about men that that you know that that are just like idiosyncrasies of masculinity right uh and so that's what you encounter in the in the, the strange and so in terms of cosmic images that's why on the edge of churches you'll have monsters because they represent that place where order breaks down where identity breaks down and in a, in a true christian vision let's say a really cosmic christian vision those places where identity breaks down are not necessarily evil in themselves. They actually play a role in a kind of grand cosmic image. They just are the place where identity breaks down. And often those characters, they, they're like sphinxes. They're like the cherub. They act as guardians in the, their proper position. And so the dwarves, these little monsters around Snow White, they protect her. Right? They protect her from the darker things. They protect her from the evil witch. And so you'll see that in several fairy tales, if you just pay attention, you'll notice this, this role of the, the, the monster or the strange protector of the, of the main character. Uh, and so that is the, what, what monsters are. They are hybridity, exception, strangeness that can sometimes eat you if, if, but that can also protect you. It's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, play there because it is in some ways the margin. Yeah, that's fascinating. It also seems to be perhaps the realm of fairies. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah the, 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 the world of fairies or the, the disembodied or subtle bodies that you encounter mm -hmm. in the woods mm -hmm. of things that aren't completely embodied the way that we think of them, but are vague, let's say, or, or kind of are... are suggestions or mm -hmm. uh, uh, let's say moods and all these types of things that people encounter in the woods that are uh, what fairies seem to be alluding to, you know, are double, have a double side, right? We all know that the fairies are, are not always on your side. The fairies can drag, you know, like sirens, they can kind of pull you in and then, and then make you lose your world, but they can also protect you. They can help you. They can do all these things as well. Yeah, I, I'm a huge George MacDonald fan. I would love for you guys to illustrate one of his fairy tales. In fact, my favorite fairy tale by him, ironically, is not a, one that m many people have read, but it's called The Carousel. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of fairies in it, and there's a little queen fairy who's uh, very wicked. But I learned a lot about fairies from reading The Carousel by George MacDonald. I think that would be a fascinated one, fascinating one to see uh, if you did illustrations, if your team did that. George McDonald books they, linguistically are so superior that uh, nobody has been able to illustrate them well, mm -hmm. I, in my opinion. And I think that would be a really great project, mm -hmm. uh, getting those republished with beautiful illustrations from your team would be amazing. <laughs> there is a project right now for kind of retelling, redoing George McDonald in prose uh, to make it more accessible to people. And then they're, I think they're illustrating it too. 
Okay, yeah. Oh, I have heard of a of a person who is redoing some of George McDonald's, and I haven't read them yet, but I have heard that it's very well done. Mm-hmm. I just need to buy a copy and look at it. Um, but I still think that you guys would be able to do some really incredibly I'm sure we would. amazing. Well, I mean, I've been really fortunate to be surrounded by just astoundingly uh, talented people. It's been great. Yeah, yeah, you really have. I'm really excited about this fairy tale project, and I am. I cannot wait to buy them all for my grandchildren, <laughs> and they will all get their own copies. They're just beautifully done, and like I said, I don't normally endorse rewrites, but this one is a huge exception, and it's very there well is a done. Way, like fairy tales, I think that in some ways fairy tales are like the ancient myths for us, and we have to understand them also is participating in a kind of orality that we've forgotten, right? The Grimm brothers didn't invent these fairy tales. They they transcribed them and they edited them. Uh, and so because of that, you know, that's why there's rhymes between fairy tales. So in, for example, Grimm's version of Snow White, there's the way it's described, the way that she goes into the house of the dwarves and she eats from their, their food is very similar to Goldilocks. There are there are very strong yeah. comparisons which disappear in, for example, Disney's version. But it's because their fairy tales are like little puzzles, little puzzles with with uh, tropes that kind of float between each other. And if we kind of enter into that storytelling and love it, you know, and really dive into it with a with a, a desire to celebrate and to love them, then I think it is possible to retell them in ways that make them shine in particular ways without twisting them, without trying to use them ideologically, but you can make certain elements brighter. And some of those elements are relevant today. So a little example that, for example, in the Snow White version, there is in Snow White, there's a clear illusion that the queen is vain and that the queen is looking into her mirror and is using the mirror to judge herself, but then also to judge Snow White. Uh, and so it's there in the Grimm's version, but in my version, what I wanted to do is to really make that pop out in a way that makes you understand that I'm not talking directly about these things, these cell phones, but I am alluding to the problem of vanity and the problem of the black mirror that is judging you, that is telling you, that is telling you who's the most beautiful. Uh, and so there's a lot of relevance in Snow White today because of our problem with cell phones and our problem with technology. Uh, but I obviously I don't say that. I, I never I never will directly point to it. But it's like let's make that part of the story, like her obsession with the mirror and her obsession with her own beauty. Let's make that pop out a little more so that people can can see its relevance today. I love that. I love that. That is so important. This is also why fairy tales are great for every age. Mm, yeah. Teenagers need to be reading these. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. yeah, and I'll tell you, children and, and young people before they're you know twenty five or older, um, they pick up I think a lot more than mm. we do. When as we get older, we sort of lose our ability to see that. <laughs> I don't know. Thinking of the scripture where Jesus says that you need to be like little children, yeah, in your faith, and we we need to remember that and not lose our childlikeness that, that God wants us to have and keep. Um, and that's why I think fairy tales are great for everybody. Um, but I, I tend to, I feel sad when working with a lot of classical schools that they don't still have the junior high and high school students reading fairy tales and fables. Mm. And I, I recommend to every school that I work for, 
the beginning of the school year, the first two weeks of school, you should be focusing on fables and fairy tales because they're approachable, they're not long, and they're such a great way to start off the school year and get students um, thinking about the transcendent. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I think that the idea that fairy tales are for children, you know, I think that it's a, it's really the wrong way to understand it. I think that what fairy tales offer is actually something similar to what the gospel offers or to what uh, religion offers is a scalable story, right? That is as accessible to the most illiterate, you know, person, but that also has something to, to say to the greatest scholar, you know, that you can find. And I think that fairy tales offer that, you know, it's like, one of the things that happens is that the pattern is there and you jump in, like I dive into it and I jump into it and I retell the story and I try to maintain as much of the pattern in it and make some aspects shine. But I've already written the story. I wrote it several months ago and, and I reread my own story and I'm like, Oh, I didn't, I, I haven't seen that. Like I didn't see that and and it's there. I put it in the story, but I didn't even myself notice yeah. some of the aspects that I was that I was bringing out, and then some of the aspects in the original fairy tales. And that's what's so powerful about these stories that they contain so much that you can even retell them without even knowing how much you're what you're doing completely. I am so glad you brought that up because this is the point of um, George McDonald wrote a an essay called um, "The Fantastic Imagination." Oh, mm -hmm. such a great essay. And he talks about that and how the Holy Spirit leads authors to write. And that it's it's like these stories are like a symphony. And when you go to a symphony, you hear different things. Mm -hmm. So one person may hear and focus on this part of the symphony. Another person may hear. And so when you're asking three or four different people what they heard at the symphony, you're going to hear three or four different stories because different things are going to pop out to you. Mm -hmm at different times. And so, uh, as a work of art, um, they are going to speak to the receiver, um, differently at different times, exactly like the scripture. You could read the scripture, the same verse over and over. And then one day after 20 years, yeah. Oh, Oh, because you are at a different place in your life and you see it. Yeah, yeah. Especially the story of Christ. Like the story of Christ is just, like it's just it's such a condensed story like it has so much in it and christ is also a character that crosses all the literary boundaries he doesn't actually hold one single place and what we usually understand as as character tropes he actually seems to cross over and is like is is all these things he's a king but he's also like a criminal he's a shepherd but and it's like he's also and it's like all of these he's a doctor he's a he's a doctor he heals people he's all these things and it, it's it doesn't make sense it makes total sense but it it what it does is it, it's there's so much that you can't get it you can't take it all in you always end up having your own little version of jesus uh and it's kind of too bad but that's inevitable because there's just too much there I'm I'm happy you're bringing that up too because and that's why um so I converted to orthodoxy like 5 years ago and I think one of the things that drew me into orthodoxy was all of the iconography of Christ and the different stories that we have throughout our churches mm. the the icons are there right to tell us the story because in the tradition people were illiterate 
you know, originally. And so these, these icons are there to help us know the story. And I, I think you're right about that, about Christ crossing over into all the different, different, uh, what's the word you want to use for that? It just, he really does cross. Yeah. He just embodies different characters. Every, from, yeah. Embodies. That's a good, he good just, way. He, to... just, he just embodies different characters that you could find in ancient stories and ancient myths or whatever. He seems to have a lot of them together, you know? Right. So, and so that's what... I think, I think we can see that in the icons and like having gone to churches that didn't have icons my whole life. When I walked into the Orthodox Church, I was able to see what you're talking about, yeah. all the different layers of the life of Christ. When you're when they're visually there in front of you, it's like, wow, I never thought of Christ in that way before. Or yeah. I never noticed that before. But those visuals just really help help you to really um embrace it, I think yeah, better. De definitely. Yeah, I think so. And in fairy tales, what happens is that the fairy tale is so condensed it's it's very compressed and every element is extremely meaningful so every sentence in a fairy tale is pregnant you know it's it so there's a way in which in some ways they're simple and they're short but they have they contain so much in them uh that that it's it's actually quite astounding how much they can contain in the in these little just in in all the elements lined up together one after the other before we wrap up, I, I want to, um, I'm thinking about a teacher recently. I was teaching on fairy tales and a few times during my session, I said, we, we live in a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. We're actually living in a real fairy tale. And that really kind of threw her in, and she couldn't understand what I meant by that. I'd like to hear your take on that because I know you believe that too. Yeah. How would you explain that? Well, I think that <laughs> the thing is that we this this the tropes in fairy tales that what they are are just very very condensed very very compressed versions of our lives that's why we care about them it's not complicated human beings care about certain things human beings remember certain things and human beings forget other things and also can't pay attention to 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 other things you know that because you know when you hear a boring story you forget it if you watch a boring movie you forget it but there are aspects of reality that shine for us and fairy tales are highly condensed iterations of memory and so they are something that has happened over thousands of years where stories are told and then some elements are carried through to the next generation and carried through and carried through and they get refined and condensed until they're like pure gold but the, the reason why you care about them is because they're condensed versions of what makes up your life. They're condensed versions of what makes up the things you care about in an everyday. That's why you care about them. The idea that the fantastical is just imaginary and that we somehow find pleasure just in the imaginary, that's wrong. The fantastical has to, for, it to, for us to care about it, it has to condense and connect to things that we find relevant in our lives. And so, it's sometimes it's hard to tell because some of these images are so profound and so, let's say, almost pre-literate pre, uh, that we don't know why. Like, we don't know why certain images just catch us. Like, why is it the story of Goldilocks is one of the strangest stories in the world? What is, why do we, why do we care about that story? 
what is it about this strange girl that ends up in a strange house and and goes in and eats the different things and then dies because of that and falls asleep and then it's like what's going on and in some ways how can i say this even if you can't analyze it it doesn't matter it has to be that it has to be condensed versions of your life and as you you're just reading them and knowing them and remembering them and meditating on them uh, is enough and if you do that for a while at some point you'll have insight and they'll start to act like a lens through which you now notice the world uh finding meaning you'll realize oh you know it's like the the image of the of the of the let's say evil stepmother you know it doesn't necessarily have to be an evil stepmother it just means that someone in authority over you that isn't connected to that which you care about and that which makes you what you are doesn't have your best intentions in in mind and that's something people deal with all the time you deal with the evil stepmother all the time when you have a boss that has their own intentions that isn't isn't the really caring for you have corruption in systems where the per- people there don't care about the goal of the system but have their own like kind of intentions it's like so so that's what the world is made of you have you it doesn't you also have to be careful not to get too hung up on the categories but that type the, the evil stepmother everybody's met her everybody in their life has met her and it's not always a woman by the way that's true thank you yeah that's a great explanation i think hopefully that will help other people who may have that same question um I always like to end my podcast asking my guest, what is a quote from a book that has had a huge impact on you or a book you wish you had read sooner in your life? Actually, you know, a book that I wish I had read sooner in my life is really uh, Dante's comedy. Like the comedia, I read it only in my mid thirties. And when I read that, it was just such a connector right? Such a connector, like a cosmic connector between different stories, understanding all these relationships between the pagan world and the Christian world. It kind of opened up a space that I was somewhat intuitive about, but that really, really uh, connected. And then it helped me see in what we we kind of call universal history. People who listen to your podcast will have met Richard Rowland. We do this podcast together where we talk about how the ancient myths and and uh, you know, biblical thinking and history connect together in, in, in thinking. And Dante is the one that opened that door for me. And so I wish I would have read him in my like late teens even, you know, because he would have opened that door for me. Oh, that's great. I, I agree. Dante is amazing. I actually read it for the, him for the first time. I was working at the University of Dallas and I took a class and I, I read so really, for me, just a few years ago was my first oh, time yeah. to read it. And it was mind-blowing. <laughs> it really is absolutely beautiful. I yeah. agree with you. Thank you for sharing that. Do you have a translation you like in particular? Uh, no, I don't know. I'm not I'm not that. that I, I'm definitely not, sadly, I have to confess that I'm not the poetic type. And so I read <laughs> prose translations. I find poetry... Uh, especially translated poetry, I just find it very difficult to read because I'm I'm really an image person and mm-hmm. I'm an analogy person. So I want to get the image. And so it's like, if I feel like the poetry is kind of distorting it a little bit just to get to the to the verse, you know, when you read poetic translations, I, I easily get annoyed. And so I just want to get, so I read the same with like, I read the, you know, I read the the Odyssey and, uh, you know, the Aeneid, the Aeneid, all of these texts I always read in prose because 
because it, I, oh, I, I really want to get to the image, you know? Oh, that's so interesting. Well, I will send you some recommendations for some poetry versions that I All think right. you would okay, enjoy. That are, that are good. Okay. <laughs> and I'll put some in the in the show notes. We'll have links to some of those different translations and um, and definitely to your Kickstarter and your podcast, Symbolic World Podcast, and the one with Richard that you do on yeah. the history. That's great too. Thank you, Jonathan, so much for coming well, on the thanks. show. This, was, this has been a really great conversation. I really I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can get involved in a few ways. There's a Facebook page where we actively discuss the ideas around classical education. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. And if you want to help offset our production costs, you can support the podcast financially by going to www.classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash support. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once said, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a father who is in heaven.